Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another session of Tech Uncensored. My name is uh, Sami Hussein, and today we're going to talk about the healthcare system. Is it broken? We don't know. <laughs> there are a lot of conflicting messages out there, but I've got the, the right person to talk to today. I've got Dr. Rashad Usmani, an urgent care physician, an entrepreneur, and an angel investor. Thank you, Rashad, for coming on the show. It's great to be here, Sami, and excited for this conversation. Yeah, so let's. I'm going to just give you an example. Of, I'm going to talk about what happened to, to a personal experience, right? I mean, I grew up uh, in St. Catharines, a small town, and uh, I had two doctors my entire career. But, and the only reason I got the second family doctor is because the other one retired. Uh, and it was a very personal relationship. The doctors spent time with you. They got to know you. They know your whole family. And now we fast forward to today. Doctors don't want to get to know you anymore it's like you're going through this it's a it's a numbers game you just got to keep going and there's everyone's going through there and they want to get as many patients through you feel like where's the personal aspect gone to it where has the healer gone it was such it's such a noble profession and i, I just feel some of that has been lost right and you know in and the long wait times for specialists i had to go see a specialist myself for my asthma and um it took eight months so I'm going to turn it over to you. Is it broken? Am I wrong in what I'm saying? Or, <laughs> Yeah, I think that there's a lot to unpack there. I'll start by saying no system is broken. It's perfectly designed to produce the results it's producing. And that's a quote from Quality Improvement from Don Berwick. Medicine and medical knowledge doubles every five years. So if you think about it, we have to know about 12 times more what we had to know years ago okay uh, are, you, yeah. are you getting yeah. interference as well yeah i'm gonna just i'm gonna just uh mute myself rashad because my fan is uh okay. going on hang on here sure yeah so the the amount of knowledge we have to know has grown exponentially over the past 20 years that coupled with the administrative workload and burden electronic medical records, more insurance paperwork, the way our notes are supposed to be now, has added quite a bit more on our plates in terms of the amount of work hours needed. There's a recent study out, we need 26 hours in a day to take care of the patients that we currently take care of with the same volumes. So obviously we can work 26 hours a day. And I think that's why we're seeing a shift in physicians practicing in an environment which, um, which prioritizes volume and the the reimbursement structure encourages that the way we are rewarded financially in medicine is by seeing more and more people um, and we get paid per consult we, we make about 25 dollars per consult after overhead if you think about it given our training and our opportunity cost um, that's not a whole lot and that's why people are seeing 40 50 people a day so I'll stop there. So I mean, I hope that provides a bit of context um, why this is happening. Uh, I'll add one more thing. Most issues are system issues that are not individual issues. And we should look at systemic changes like changing the reimbursement structure, changing our the amount of patients we uh, take on over a year um, to look at improving the system. And I do agree with a lot of what's being said in terms of team-based care with physicians, as managers 
of teams is likely the future, but again, the reimbursement structure, the decision-making structure, and the liability structure all have to follow in accordance to that. So that's interesting. I'm glad you uh, said that, that there's, you spend so much time on paperwork and, uh, you know, that would not have occurred to me. I would have thought that there's an admin, I don't know why, but an admin person in the background doing that for you. But, um, so then what's the, I guess, you know, $25, I, I agree with $25 just does not make sense, particularly the amount of investment and, you know, very few can go to medical school, let's face it. So it's, it's a very, uh, it's, it should be a, a rewarded area as well. So what's the solution to that? I think when you dig deeper into problems in healthcare, you always land on reimbursement. Prevention is cheaper. To give you an example, for lung cancer, delayed diagnosis and treatment is about $250,000. And early diagnosis and treatment is about a couple thousand. So th there's a big gap between the cost of treatment and the cost of prevention. The problem is you don't realize those savings for years down the line. So if we live healthier lifestyles, if we don't smoke, we're not getting lung cancer, or if we do smoke till well into our 60s and 70s. Yeah. And given the way funding flows and given the way given the time span of when organizations, government, insurance payers want to save costs, it's hard to design a system which incentivizes prevention, showing the financial ROI will not be captured for 40 years. So I think if we can solve that problem, everything else will fall into place in terms of incentivizing prevention. We'll have more physicians working in primary care. We'll have more remote monitoring softwares telling us, you know, are you getting good sleeps? Are you eating well? Are you walking enough? And then providing a, the appropriate positive reinforcements to encourage healthy behaviors. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there. The immediate solution that is being proposed is expediting licensure for IMGs, international medical graduates, people who graduated abroad. I think that's a noble thing and I think that's needed, but it's a band-aid. If you look at the per capita of physicians in Canada, it's not too bad. We have 1.2 family physicians per thousand patients. The problem is more than half of them are not working in outpatient longitudinal settings. Now, if we expedite the licensure for these IMGs, I can't hear you, Sam. What does that mean, outpatient longitudinal settings? So what you described, like having okay. a family doctor, what we call uh, cradle to grave care, so okay. from your baby to your end days. Okay. okay. Um, we're, we're not practicing in that setting because the reimbursement model doesn't encourage it. So you can throw in as many physicians as you want. They're still not going to choose that setting. And some of them might, but I think it's a band-aid solution that's going to last a few years. And unless you just want to do this cyclical care where you just keep bringing in IMGs, um, and again, I'm, you know, obviously I'm, I'm an immigrant myself. I'm a proponent of immigration. Um, I think, uh, it's, we need a, a, a way to do it, but it won't fix the lack of this people not having a family doctor. Um, yeah. What about, um, so what if fixing this means that what giving doctors an opportunity to see as let's say 
a, a, a kind of a benchmark about how many uh, patients you see and paying them a flat salary. Was that the solution? Yeah. So I think value-based care, uh, where value is measured yeah. by the processes family doctors have in place and not only the outcomes is the answer. If you if you place the value on the outcome, so say weight loss is a perfect example for this. If you incentivize people for a strict BMI, they will starve themselves. What you want to incentivize is a good diet and exercise. So yeah. if you take that analogy to healthcare, um, you want family doctors to be available to their patients and to just provide the access to care that the patients need. The way to do it is our, our census, I think, should be around 500 patients. Um, right now, it's routinely anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000. Wow. Um, and as, uh, that, what, what happens is, is because the census is so much, we can provide good care uh, because there's just too many people to provide care to. We don't feel good about our, ourselves. This is not to like um, play the victim, so to say. Yeah. Uh, but that leads to more burnout, and then we work less. Yeah. And we, we, there's so many physicians trying to find ways out of clinical medicine because they're not finding clinical medicine sustainable in the way it's designed right now. So, yeah, I think a team-based care, you, and it's okay for us to have 2,000 patients if we can hire nurse practitioners, physician assistants, uh, even clinical assistants who are IMGs um, to to facilitate our, our the care provider. Right now, as it stands, is we can hire nurse practitioners, but we can't bill for them. So essentially, we can't hire them. Um, we still have to see every patient. So I think um, if they could just change that we could bill for nurse practitioners, it would open up a lot of doors for a lot more people to get um, family medicine care. Now, the caveat there is if we do it for, for family doctors and specialists, again, specialists get paid more, the nurse practitioners will go the specialty route. The key is to increase the value of family medicine, both from a societal perspective, but also a financial perspective compared to specialists. And this is a sticking point where I think not a lot of people will, will, will agree with me. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, because specialists presumably make, what, a lot more or significantly more? Marketing. Yeah, so um, in an urgent care setting, an internist would bill $84 after 30% would take home, um, you know, $55, yeah. $50, $50, whereas I'm taking home $25 after overhead. It's a double yeah. uh, for providing the exact same service. Okay. Um, and, you know, part of that is they have more training. Uh, so they do two more years of training, which is now they're extending family medicine residency for three years, which is another thing I don't agree with because if – I can train one more year, and we've already trained 12 years at this point. Yeah. So if I can train 13 years instead of 12 and make double per patient, why wouldn't I do that? Yeah, of course. Of it course. doesn't make sense to train the lesser amount. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if, if it went to this model, though, then you would require more doctors, would you not? Because you'd be seeing fewer patients. Yeah. You would be a, a more holistic way and more going back to the roots of why you know you went into medicine presumably right so you would require more doctors into the system then we would have a shortage would we, would we not i no because if if most of the majority of doctors took on 2000 patients say 50% of us took on 2000 patients 
and had nurse practitioners, PAs, we would cover the whole population. As I said earlier in the in this podcast, the ratio is 1.2 family doctors per thousand patients. So if, you know, 0.6 of us took on 2,000 patients, that, that, that works out to we cover the whole population. The, the problem isn't the exact number. Now, with an aging population, you can say as family doctors retire and physicians retire and our population grows, there will be a shortage. But if you take a snapshot in time right now, uh, the problem isn't necessarily uh, the, the number of doctors. It's more how they're practicing, how many people they're taking care of, because the, the work is not sustainable. Um, and is that why doctors are not uh, locating to more rural areas where perhaps you're not going to be able to see the, the number of patients? And I mean, the, uh, would the, the studies show that the health issues there are, are far more acute in less affluent areas than they are not in affluent areas? It's yeah. a different problem, but how is that being addressed? The The problem with the rural area is in some places, you only need one doctor to take care of the populations. If you lose that doctor, you have no doctor. Yeah. Um, if you look at the, the percent or the numbers of people who don't have a family doctor, it's the same. And I think the rural area population is more societal or where people want to live. Um, generally, the rural areas... Uh, I like practicing in rural medicine way more than urban medicine. Um, the, the medicine itself, the science and the cases you see, is just, it's just more rewarding. Um, and you do get a bonus. In BC, it's up to 30% on top of what you make. Um, in Ontario, the bonuses aren't as much, but they give you stipends. They give you incentive bonuses. And some of the places are giving you 100000 150000 over four years, which is a decent amount. Um but I think that is more to do with just some people are city people, some people are rural people. Um, yeah. So then, what is the um, what? So from from a specialist perspective, what is the why is there long wait times there? Certainly, surely they they're not seeing the same amount of patients. Yeah. So it's it depends on the specialist. Um, so we, we can talk about psychiatrists, and I know a little bit about this for my startup. I hired psychiatrists. I looked into this. The ratio of psychiatrists to uh, the population in Ontario is one to seven thousand eight hundred. The which is which is an okay ratio. Um, the ratio it should be is between seventy five hundred to ten thousand to one psychiatrist. But again, less than half of them are practicing in outpatient settings. A lot of them are working for hospitals, but also a substantial amount are working for private insurance companies. Um, you get paid better, you have better, better lifestyle, better work-life balance, which is different from surgical specialists um, in which there is a overabundance of specialists, but there aren't enough jobs in Canada. Um, Plastic surgery, orthopedic surgery are a couple examples here where the OR times are so restricted, partly because of politics, partly because of nursing staff, that the specialists don't have jobs. And they and I can talk about I I did my residency in Camel River, which is a, a, a town on Vancouver Island, um, beautiful place. Uh, it's called Salmon Capital of the World. But, you know, small town, like 25, 30,000 people. They posted an opening for a plastic surgeon. And they got 10 responses in two days. And these were people who are Harvard, Yale trained, um, wanting to work in Campbell River, which is not to like 
harp on Camel River. It's a beautiful place, and UBC is a great school. But you wouldn't expect that. Um, you wouldn't expect that there would be an abundance of specialists, plastic surgeons who have trained five years of residency, sometimes have done subspecialties, wanting to go to Campbell River because there are no jobs. Well, that's um, that's sad to hear, actually. That's that is very sad to hear. But so, but what about the ones that there are? Like for instance, for me, when I had to go see my uh, respirologist, or yeah. for my mother who has been waiting eight months for cataract surgery, so that hasn't happened. In fact, she, she told me last week, she's been booked. She's going to cataract surgery. And then my sister yeah. called me and said, no, no, she's going in for a consult. <laughs> hasn't been booked yet. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll quote um, a colleague, Mike Warner. He did a great video on this and how all our ORs close at 4 p.m. And they're not open on weekends. So if, if you can just open the OR, because especially they want to operate. They're surgeons. like They, they like operating. That's what they train for such sometimes 17, 18 years total, um, is as they don't have the ability or the OR or the operating room available to them to operate. I think that's the easiest fix. The other answer I would give is because specialists don't have jobs, they leave, they go south of the border, they establish their lives there. Um, and once someone is settled, you have kids, um, it's, it's hard to move um, once you're settled and your kids are settled in. You know, like my daughter's daycare is is down the road. Like, it's, I have to have a really strong incentive to move at this point. Okay, um, so let's let's talk about uh, what what is Ford doing? He wants to privatize. There's some disrupting technology that's coming out where they're doing online healthcare. Yeah, are these models sustainable? What what is? I don't understand what Ford's plan is because he says he's privatizing, yet he's saying, "Don't worry, the." the system will still cover it. Well, how is that different, different than now? And then these the online healthcare, why would the problem go away? Yeah, so uh, the, I'll speak to both issues. For the privatization, um, our healthcare is publicly funded, but the vast majority is privately delivered. We have more privately delivered healthcare than the states. Um, so in some sense, we're more private than the states. <laughs> Although the funding is, is, is where usually when people say private care, they mean private funding, not private delivery. What yeah. private delivery means is you could open a hospital and we have lots of hospitals um, like Mount Sinai, which are private hospitals. Um, but you can you build the government and you're not allowed to build the patient directly. So what he's doing is essentially saying you can open your hospital and build the government. The, the main problem people have with that is, well, where will the staff come from? But if there are surgeons who are looking for operating room and the current hospitals are not providing it, then yeah, they will go to these private centers. Now, a much easier solution is just to open the, the public hospital ORs for a longer time frame so you don't have to build a new facility and fund it and, you know, the waste more taxpayers' money. For online care, we had these codes we were billing in COVID, uh, billing codes for OHIP. So how billing works is when you go see a doctor, we bill the government and then they pay us. Before COVID, we didn't have uh, virtual billing codes outside of a specific network called OTN. But during COVID, they opened these codes as I could just call a patient and I could bill. And I could bill the same amount I would get as, as opposed to in person. So this led to some abuse from family doctors um, where they would just bill 80 consults a day and you can't do 80 and they would do them, but they would just cut them really short. The billing is based on an honor system. 
the the audits are kind of they're, they're frequent but they're they're but like if you're a high biller and then they'll kind of go audit you um what happened with this is i think um i don't know why they made this decision but they cut the billing codes to about a third of what they paid previously so now essentially online care in the public system doesn't exist because from my perspective, it takes the same amount of time, aptitude, mental energy to do a phone call with a patient as opposed to see them in person. If anything, I'm much faster in person because I can examine you. If you come in and you're saying, you know, my belly hurts or my throat hurts, I can look. Whereas if you're on the phone, I have to ask you a lot of questions and maybe have to ask you to push on your belly on different spots. So it, it, it takes longer almost to do a phone consult than an in-person in, in some instances. So what a lot of physicians are saying is they're just, they're not offering phone care and they're saying, you know, we can provide better care in person and we will just do that. Um, so now inadvertently the access to online or, and, and I think this is, this is terrible for rural communities specifically uh, because they're the ones most affected. Uh, when I ran my uh, telemedicine company, a lot of my patients were from rural and, you know, they were very thankful because if I wasn't there um, or if the one of the physicians we hired or employed weren't there, um, they would have to drive an hour or two to the next next clinic. Um, yeah. I mean, so that's a good point. So there is a there is a role for telemedicine. It's just that there's there's also a danger of being abused. I certainly have seen it myself where, you know my doctor would call me for a two minute call and then go to the next call, go to the next call. I mean, I'm just saying, how, how are you going to do a physical on the phone with me? No, seriously. It just becomes, then you, I mean, you, there are people who are just going to, you know, believe it, but there are people like me who are going, okay, this is just being abused. Right. So yeah, I think there are people like you who are offering real value and services. And as a result of these outliers, it gets cut. Yep. So you think um, there is no, there's no the 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 root of telemedicine and we see tech startups that are doing this telemedicine area you think that it's not viable no i think there's definitely a digital first home-based care model as as it would be an amazing innovative process it would allow people to get care in their homes when you're sick you don't want to go to a clinic you don't want to go to urgent care or an emerge or a hospital even you want to stay home and be taken care of at home we have the technology to do it we have the medical knowledge to do it it's it's simply we don't have the reimbursement structure to provide wow. that care i think uh, i think that's the answer i think we can screen better on the phone now the the caveat there being some people will abuse it and maybe there needs to be more monitoring or more structure around it and say, you know, if you're having, if you're vomiting, right, come in, right? Yeah. Don't allow that code to be billed virtually. Yeah. Um, but if you need a refill on your blood pressure medication and you saw your doctor last month and I have all the information I need, then I don't need to see you. We can do it over the phone. Yeah. Um, so I think that a digital first, home first care model it should be the future. Uh, I don't know if it will be the future, but I think it should be. It should be the future. Okay, well, that's that's good to know. Then what about, um, so you're saying in, in emergency rooms, 
why are there long wait times? Why are there 22 hour wait times on average? Yeah, I mean, uh, the biggest reason is lack of access to primary care. People are going to emergencies rooms when they don't need to. I think that's kind of the short and sweet answer there. Um, yeah. But then, I mean, I know there's some outliers where people have died in the emergency room. I don't know if this was uh, just a one-off, it was an error. It doesn't make sense because I would think that somehow these patients would get triaged. But Yeah, I think uh, uh, there's a couple of things here in which the system is designed and it goes back to about 20 people, 20% 20 of people admitted to the hospital don't need to be there, but they're there because there's nowhere for them to go. And that's because we don't have enough nursing homes, enough community home care infrastructure for those people to be discharged. And that follows downstream where people are admitted to the hospital, but still in emergencies room because there's no bed for them upstairs. There's no bed for them on the ward. And that goes further downstream is for an eMERGE physician to take care of a patient, they have to be in the emergency room. So if you're waiting in the triage bay or in the eMERGE, um, yeah, like a nurse will lay eyes on you once in a while. But unless you're, you're, unless you're coding or unless you get really sick, you're not going to get continuous care because you're not on a bed. The other thing is the way our paramedic system works is the paramedics have to take the patient off the stretcher onto the hospital bed before they leave and they have to do a side out. If the hospital doesn't have beds, then these paramedics are stuck as well. And they can go out in the community and provide care. I think the, again, going back to incentivizing care at home would help here. Um, I don't know enough about, do we have enough emergencies room spots or capacity um your intuitive guess would be we don't but uh, i can't comment on that with accurate numbers because i don't have that information on hand so i i guess i mean the, the problems you're highlighting i can see is it's, it's almost a cascading effect if you don't fix this here it's just going to trickle all the way down the whole stream the vertical stream here but even the the private model that's being suggested by the <coughs> province of ontario um, the billing directly to the government. I mean, isn't that what we do now? Isn't that what doctors do now anyways? So what's what's changed? I don't understand what's changed. Yeah, nothing. How does it make it better? It, it doesn't. It, it allows uh, people to open more facilities. So we can, you can open clinics and build a government. But as it stands right now, I cannot open a hospital and build a government. I need uh, approval, or I can't open a surgical center and build the government. So now they're allowing more people to open surgical centers and build the government. Um, yeah, so in that sense, people will get more surgeries. But, you know, I, I think uh, the, the problem I have with the system is if it's public funded, it should be public delivered and care should be streamlined. When you get all this decentralization to an extent, but all this segregation of scattered care, um, their incentives aren't aligned, and it, it leads to more inefficiencies and misuse of and misappropriation of funds. I think a private system could work with the appropriate structures in place, and I like the Swiss system here, in which everyone is mandated to have health insurance, but you have to pay for it, 
if you can't pay for it, then the government will subsidize you. It does create some tiers of healthcare, so you can pay for faster access. Now, obviously, you can't pay for faster access if you're having a heart attack. Everyone who has a heart attack gets the same access. But say you have acne or something cosmetic, which again, not to pick on acne because it can have very real mental health effects. But say you have something that most people would agree uh, or your belly hurts when you eat once every week. Um, something that is less or not as significant, um, people can pay for expedited care. So instead of being seen in a week, you can be seen today. Um, that in some ways goes against the Canada Health Act. Now, the Canada Health Act only applies to physicians. It does not apply to nurse practitioners. It does not apply to pharmacists. It does not apply to physician assistants. So the way around that could be, because I, I think changing the Canada Health Act or removing it is, is too big of a project at this point. Um, but yeah, I, th I think a system, a tiered system like that with rules in place saying that, you know, you can't expedite care for heart attacks. Everyone needs to get the same amount of um, same efficiency and speed of care delivery for something like that. That that could work well here. Um, In a perfect world, or your solution, if you if you could go to uh, Ford or to Trudeau and say, "This is what we need to do. These five things," what would they be? So I think the the Swiss system borrow from that, uh, allow people to pay a little bit more for more care in a structured manner, change the reimbursement for primary care, allow us to bill for nurse practitioners. I think just those, even if they just change the reimbursement for primary care and allow us, but only primary care to bill for nurse practitioners. Because what you want is more physicians to choose outpatient longitudinal primary care. Okay. Because right. And that will ensure that the 20% of Canadians who don't have family physicians get them. Okay. I'll, I'll keep it simple. Just to just do that one thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Rashad Usmani, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me at uh, Tech Uncensored. Uh, as always, I will be in touch with you. Uh, but thanks and have a great weekend. I think we've got a snowstorm coming, so stay safe. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Sam. It was great being on today. Okay, thanks a lot. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.